Hi, everyone. I'm excited to bring you this conversation with Joshua Landy. Josh is the chief medical officer and co-founder for Figure One, a social networking and medical education site for doctors. They have raised over $23.5 million in funding and have 3 million users worldwide. He's also a practicing intensive care doctor and the medical lead for medical assistance in dying at Scarborough General Hospital here in Ontario. We talk about what it takes to launch your startup from idea to execution. We talk about medical assistance dying, and we also talk about the state of Canadian healthcare. I am grateful for Josh for sharing his frank thoughts and being so transparent and honest with me here. I hope you guys enjoy the conversation as much as I do. Thanks so much, Josh, for coming on the podcast. I'm really excited for this conversation. If you could start with a brief introduction and then we can get into it. Sure, I'd be happy to. Thanks for having me, Rashad. I'm Josh Landy. I'm uh, an, a practicing intensive care doctor and internal medicine specialist. I practice in Scarborough, uh, as well as having a practice up north in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. For 10 years, I have been the co-founder of a medical tech company called Figure One, which is a medical case sharing platform for healthcare professionals so that you can take a picture, write a short caption, and send a case of curiosity, of interest, of teaching to your friends, your colleagues, your teachers, your students, whoever should see it, and they can uh, respond and give you commentary. And you can you can basically learn from the experience of others. Uh, and our goal has always been with figure one is to democratize the knowledge of medicine, give people access to cases around the world so you can really learn from seeing cases. And we've been running that company for 10 years, it's now got about 3 million users around the globe in 190 plus countries. I'd be happy to do lots of marketing talk for Figure One, but I, I think there's probably more interesting stuff we should talk about. One of the questions our listeners had was, how do you go from idea to execution? Talk me through how you came up with Figure One, how you recruited your team. Did you raise money or not? And how did you launch the product and market? One of the things I think a lot about is how to take ideas from inside your brain and make them exist in the real world. First of all, we drastically underestimate the degree of error in the world. Um, and when you consider your ideas and how they work in your mind, you have a you have a model of the world of how it would work. And that model does not contain any of the errors. Like when you are thinking about how a product's going to go. There's no typos in any of the marketing content in your mind, right? There's no uh, like problems with the email server that you now need to spin up a second server because your users are losing out on seeing content or something, right? So yeah. all of those things that ruin your enjoyment of things in real life are the difference between theory and reality. So you need to leave room and help correct those errors as you go, which means it's always slower than you want. And that's frustrating for folks like me because I am a super, super impatient person. The first thing I would want, so if you, if a person came to me and said like, I have this idea in my brain, it is X, I would say, great, write X down on a piece of paper and then write like, what is the step right before X is ready? And then what's the step before that? And see how many you can write down and see how many you know how to do. And then start with the first one, start with the last one on that list, which is the first one you're going to do and see how far forward you get before you need to add more steps. Um, but really, it's just like writing down the recipe for what you're about to make, writing down the outline for the essay you're about to write, 
It's okay. just thinking it through from beginning to end uh, and making sure you know where to get the pieces. Yeah, if you're building a physical object, you need to know where to, like, how, how do you build one of them? And once you have one, how do you build 10? And once you have 10, how do you build 100? Yeah. Right? And the same thing with software. Once you've built it, first of all, there's, building software is not easy, but you also need to know where your users are going to come from. And if you're launching a product that you intend to be a business, you, you, you don't need 100 users. You need 10,000 or 100,000 or a million users. And right, each order of magnitude is literally, right? obviously, it's 10 times bigger than the one before that. Yes. So, you know, uh, these are the hard parts, right? The idea is not the hard part. The prototype isn't even the hard part. It's taking those prototypes and then giving them to people, getting people to yep. buy into your idea latch onto your idea and carry out the process that you've designed for them. Um, and especially for healthcare, because doctors do whatever they want. Not, not whatever they want, but, you know, like from a technology perspective, if you're trying to design a process and say, doctors use this, they're not going to do that. They'll do whatever's best for their workflow because they have practice and they've got patients and they've got an institution within their work, right? These are all sources of mismatch between your brain and reality. Um, and so your job as a founder is to kick all of those things to the side as early as possible and prepare yourself uh, for the battle ahead. Perfect. Thanks for that answer, Josh. You, you said that you're an impatient person. Do you wish you were more patient? And how has your impatient helped you and hurt you uh, in your work and personal life? That's a great question. I give people, I give folks a piece of interview advice which you have just like embodied in your question. You know this, you, you know this advice already, I, and, and it didn't come from me. Um, the advice that I give folks is when they ask you what your strengths and weaknesses are, they're almost always the same thing. Not the yeah. same answer, but your strength, like my impatience is my greatest strength, and it is also a source of a tremendous amount of weakness. Yeah. Um, and you learn to express your you know, your skills, your powers, and protect your weaknesses uh, so that you can function maybe better than others and maybe worse, but at least acceptable to you. So let me see. My my impatience definitely is a good thing for like ensuring that follow-up gets done early um, in, in business. Uh, it's really good for deciding that I can do that when it's something yeah. that I've never done before and I somehow am able to convince myself that I'm gonna try it, right? Like for figure one, I like literally, when we needed to upload the app to the app store, they said, we need terms of service. And yeah. like my co-founders looked at me and they're like, do you wanna take a crack at writing that? And I was like, okay. yeah." And so you sort of like read a bunch of terms of service and then you, you know, you copy and paste a little bit, you write from fresh what the parts are that you think are most important. And then instead of, you know, you give it to a lawyer to make sure it's not illegal. And then they give you a check mark. And instead of costing you more money than your company is worth, you know, it, it costs somebody much less to sort of do a check mark. Um, so, you know, I'm willing to take things on because I don't, I don't, I don't feel like I can wait. It's like baked into my personality. I was like this as a kid, you know, always rushing to try new things, to test stuff out, to move on with the next step or the yeah. next level. Uh, and so, you know, I think probably that's why I ended up wanting to be an intensive care specialist 
Okay. Um, right. You get immediate feedback if your therapeutic intervention is working. There's no follow-up visits. You don't have to wait. Your interactions are short. Um, they're tight. They're focused. And unless my work is like super tight and super focused, I will lose focus and just wander away. It sounds like your impatience uh, contributes to you being what they would call scrappy in the startup world, which is mm. a, a superpower. Talking more about impatience, are your days structured and are you routine oriented? No. And, <laughs> and do you have kids, Josh? And how does that work with kids if you're not? Yeah, right. You know what the weird part is? When I'm on vacation, I design myself a little routine and I will stick to it as close as I can. No, vacation doesn't have a lot of complexity, right? Yeah. Um, you know, but like if I get to spend time at a resort or at a hotel with a pool, right? Like it'll be like, wake up at this time, like have a light breakfast, oh. go to the pool and sit there and read and listen to music, then exercise, then whatever, you know, like throw a nap in there somewhere. Um, and I will yeah. try to stick to that and do that same day every day. And when I come back, I cannot tolerate routine almost at all. Um, really? Yeah. Like it's so difficult for me. Um, I never worry. This is a fake background. Obviously I'm sitting in my home office. Yeah. Um, my desk is cluttered to all hell. I almost never spend time sitting at this desk. In fact, when I want to do serious work, I pack up and I go downtown to a, a co-work space where I have a membership and I go there and I pick a different desk than I sat in last time. Yeah. And I eat lunch in a weird hour. And I think it, for me, it's just like the, the novelty is nourishing and anything that feels routine or samey is very uh, grating. I don't know why. Yeah. Um, and with kids, every day, is, every day is a different struggle. I'm not, you yeah. know, like you, you, you try to get your kids on a routine. That's the goal, but it never works. It never works. Um, and it doesn't help that I've got a kid who's more or less just like me. Uh, yeah. so he, you know, he doesn't like routine either. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm the same way. I have this internal desire against structure and towards chaos in some ways. To me, this, there's like a deep connection between this sort of like preference for chaos or error and the way that we solve problems in the world. You know, it has to do with your error tolerance. It has to do with your ability to correct errors, uh, solve problems, that is. And uh, like, I think we're all driven to like seek a different amount of novelty in our day to satisfy our brains. Yeah, and I completely agree. An increase in entropy is the direction the universe is going in and there's no point in finding it. <laughs> Let's talk about failure. Yeah. It's easy to talk about failure from the past. So I'll ask you a more difficult question. Sure. Uh, what's something you're failing at right now? And something I'm failing at right now is trying to figure out an exit plan out of clinical medicine into a solopreneur. And I've been trying for a few months and I've made $0 in my solopreneur journey so far. Um, so what, what is something you're failing at right now, Josh? I was supposed to start a venture with my uh, with two friends this summer. I am looking at the prototype on my desk. You know, it's it's this is my project to move forward and it's still sitting on my desk. And like the label says that it was like that the uh, company started in December, but I'm looking yeah. at the clock and we have 11 days left. This company's not launching in December. Um, 
this company didn't launch in November. It didn't launch in October. It didn't launch in September. The specific failure would just be like time management and maybe just my expectations of how long things were going to take. You know, I'll push back on that a little bit, Josh. Um, Adam Grant, he's a professor at Wharton MBA school, and um, he talks about success quite a bit. In his book, Originals, he says the path to maximize success is moderate procrastination, which is what I think you're doing. <laughs> you let ideas incubate and you don't act right away. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Because you get to chew on stuff for a while. Like you get to reread the copy that you wrote two weeks ago and be like, no, yeah. it's, I can make it a little better. I can optimize it, right? So it gives you lots of chances for further optimizations. Yeah. Um, and I think I probably entrepreneur the same way that I cook which is start for things that need way more management than you have time for. And then yeah. just like basically walk in circles in the kitchen, uh, like, you know, sealing this, stirring that, checking on this, like, you know, turning that and you just keep going until you have like food arriving as being ready to be plated. Yeah, no. And and, and just to tie it up, the, the way he figured out water procrastination was he looked at, which students got the best grades, the ones who submitted the earliest, the ones who did it last minute, or the ones who wrote it early, but waited till they submitted it. And it was the ones who wrote the, their papers early and just kept working on it till the last second and submitted yeah. the last second. Josh, what is a failure you're grateful for? And what is one you regret the most? I mean, there's lots of ones in the past that sort of like very grateful for the path that I was set on. So when I finished my clinical training, I wanted to do research on medical education uh, at the University of Toronto and maybe even pursue graduate studies. Nobody was interested in supervising me. Hmm. Uh, that did not feel good, right? That yeah. felt like a that felt like a failure. And then like the correction turned out to be that I had this like the time and space to go to Stanford and meet people and in like basically invited myself to research with a group who then subsequently invited me to be a visiting scholar with their team write papers and when i finished that i came back to toronto and started figure one off of the back of the research that was done as a result of not being able to do the thing i had initially wanted to do it sounds like that was a, a failure that you didn't know you needed um yeah extent I mean, it was a failure at something that I probably wouldn't have been really well fit for, right? So, yeah. like, did I fail or did I accidentally succeed, right? Like, in retrospect, you can't really say. Let's talk about our healthcare system. Okay. In our current healthcare system, the organizations which pay us, the ones that guide our standard of care and provide us with a license are separate. So the CPSO is separate from the Ministry of Health which is both good and bad. In some ways, it creates some separation from unfair work conditions, but in other ways, it dictates the CPSO to say, you need to provide this level of care, and then the Ministry of Health to say, okay, you'll only be paid $15 for it. And I say $50, which is a new phone consult fee. Sure. Um, is that separation justified you feel and would a singular organization that is be more accountable to the public 
if it were to both guide our standard and our pay? Wow, uh, that's a rich question. Um, there's a lot in there. And I think I probably can just give you one take, which isn't like even really an answer, but I think that the tension between the uh, the purse string holder and the practice creator is probably a, I think it's a beneficial one, even if it's more tension or more friction than we want, right? Like we would prefer that the uh, physician side have more leverage over the government in that situation. Yeah. And I'm sure that uh, in many budget meetings, the government uh, cannot understand why there is so much leverage already held by the physicians and for them to earn the salaries that they do, that we do on the physician yeah. side. So I think it's important to separate those things because uh, I, even though physicians are a good group to have as self-regulated, I think there's like tremendous potential for trouble with self-regulation. This is like another piece of like my uh, Popperian preference, but um, Karl Popper, who was famous philosopher of science uh, and political science, adapted the, the long-standing question of how do you choose your leaders right mm -hmm. and so the question that question in philosophy is generally called uh who should rule okay. right and should it be a family whose family culture is understanding the nature of leadership like a monarchy should it be a democracy should it be a fascist totalitarian uh, popper said that's the wrong question don't say who should rule say ask the question how do we peacefully remove a problematic ruler Hmm. that is the question to ask because then it does not matter who is ruling yeah. there is a process that will dump bad rulers and install the next one and if they're bad too they'll go out and you keep doing it till you get a good one and then when that one's no good you get the next one and the idea is you need to be able to uh, change the leadership more than you need to be able to control the leadership yeah, I think that as it opens up the debate to if AI could lead us, could judge us, uh, should be allowed to, and do we want the world to be fair? Because our sense of fairness is not fair generally. It's unfair to a vast majority of people, and it exists within our microchasm of uh, fairness and unfairness and ethics. Our AI is not really creating a lot of stuff, right? It's yeah. It's representing things we have said and done in the past ai leading uh, anything like that would be unsuccessful for that reason that it would be regressive and not progressive if you could change one thing in healthcare what would it be josh i would i would want uh hospitals to control the uh employment of the physicians that work there i think hospitals should be able to fire oh. doctors Interesting. I'm assuming there's a story behind this. No, I just like there. the story is that there's a hundred stories of me seeing people not like doing jobs that you wouldn't let them do if this was a company and they work for the company. People going off book, doing individualized care that is not evidence based people huh. uh, like everyone knows a few physicians who don't answer their pager. Everyone knows that this person yeah. will not do surgery on a Friday night, no matter what. But yeah. they're still on call on Friday night, so the patients just wait into the morning. 
We all know people who have put the dilator into a chest instead of the actual uh, chest tube. No, we don't all know people like that, but we all know examples where like somebody just did something completely unbelievable because they had a low level of skill and it just wasn't noticed, caught, or cared about. And then the person's on staff and they can't be fired because of Ontario's, just like the precedents that are in the court for like what you're allowed to do and who's allowed to control physicians. But if you're allowed to say that we expect physicians to practice in this way and you'll lose your privileges or your job. Yeah. Um, I think there would be a lot more compliance. And like, unfortunately, hospitals get stuck with people practicing sometimes way too late, like not changing their practice for the yeah. last 15 years of their own practice. Um, and uh, you get like heterogeneous care that you can't measure where the errors are coming from. But like, it's from the people who are not doing like what the college expects them to, but they're not doing such a bad job that they get reported. Where do you see the future of Canadian healthcare going in terms of privatization? Private healthcare has existed in Canada for decades um, in the realm of the Homewoods, MedCans, Cleveland Clinics, um, Maple Dialogue for, for a couple of newer ones. But there seems to be an identity crisis that free healthcare is more important than access to healthcare. And I'm not saying private or public healthcare will provide more access, but our current system is, from my perspective, you know, doing a terrible job of providing access to care. Part of that might be because physicians are independent, we are free to work as we please to an extent. Where do you see the future of private healthcare? Do you see private healthcare expanding care and access, or do you see it limiting care? The free market will subsume the space that it occupies. And so as long as you have a, a border between what is free and what is not, things will continue to expand in the what is not free territory. Um, mm -hmm. And if once the border is moved, that space will get consumed or subsumed as well, right? So you sort okay. of picture like, you know, a diagram where there's a smaller circle labeled free healthcare, and there's a larger circle outside that labeled for-profit healthcare, right? Like that for-profit space is just going to be packed. So I don't know where our, our care system is going to go in the future, but I think there'll be probably services that need increased access will become more privatizable and services that remain core and expensive and difficult to decentralize will remain public. Yeah, the, the worry I have is the opposite will happen and services like surgeries and chemotherapy will become private and services like primary care, which is where I think should be more private, will stay public. I think to increase access to primary care, we need a direct primary care model in Canada where physicians can charge subscription. And you can cap that subscription to $50 a month or something reasonable. I think that is the best way, but the worry is it will be more ambulatory surgery centers and almost many EDs and urgent care centers that will where the private money will flow. I Which love... I love the idea of decentralized healthcare with basically like disillusion of a lot of 
like secondary care type hospitals where yeah. that care is now deferred to people's homes. Um, yeah. Like, you know, you think about what the Amazon for healthcare or what the Uber for healthcare is gonna be. And you can see that somebody might wake up with a, with shortness of breath and a cough, and then a respiratory assessment arrives at their door and they swab themselves and somebody comes and collects their blood. The oxygen company comes and drops off a tank. The portable x-ray company comes by and takes that person's x-ray and a nurse checks in by video two or three times a day reading the vitals from the telemetry that is in the kit, right? Like you can, it's easy to imagine. We have this technology. If we wanted to fake build it today, we could. Um, and I'm excited for that future. Let's talk about medical assistance and dying. Yeah. For those who don't know, I used to provide medical assistance and dying. I've helped nine patients. And the reason I stopped is emotionally, it was very rewarding, but very taxing. Mm -hmm. And usually... You know, it took me a day and a half for the whole procedure and the consults. And it's, this may sound uh, unfortunate, but it just wasn't financially, and there, there weren't enough financial incentives for me to continue. Let's let's talk about advanced directive for MAID. Sure. And so I, are, I didn't mention it in my intro, but I'm I'm the uh, MAID clinical uh, lead for Scarborough's SHN. So that's that's why we're talking about this. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about your thoughts on advanced directive for MAID. And if you could tell me what a good death for you looks like. Um, in my experience, there's tension between alleviating pain and suffering and maximizing alertness and awareness, as some patients desire. A good death for me is when I decide where and when I, I go. I'm 80 and I get a diagnosis of whatever um, year to live in. Like, okay, this is it for me. And I, I I am in control till the very end. And I maintain my autonomy. So t tell me what a good death for you looks like and your thoughts and advanced directives for me. So um, I probably agree a lot with you about the good death scenario. I mean, I think a lot of it's about autonomy, control, comfort, and uh, reduction of anxiety. Um, the thing that, as an intensive care physician, I palliate a, you know, a small proportion of my patients and seeing and understanding what their needs are has really shaped how I've entered uh, my made cases. Uh, and so making sure that I can assure the patient and their family that you will pass without pain, without anxiety, and without thinking about that process happening to you. But yeah. what is it that you want? You want your pain to be gone. You want, or your suffering to be removed. You want to not be thinking about it. So while it's, you know, may not be a death that everybody would choose for themselves, I think there are many good deaths. And I think we've had at Scarborough, almost all of them have been that way. To talk about advanced directives, there's a concept uh, called the transformative experience, um, which I think intuitively is the same uh, as it is in the technical term, except technically, the, the most important thing to remember is that you cannot predict what and how you will feel following your transformative experience. It is not knowable from your previous state. That's sort of the important thing. It's sort of like a one-way, it's a one-way membrane. It's an event horizon, it's whatever you want to call it. And I think that dementia is probably one of those things. Mm. And so I worry about advanced directives because I am not confident that the person who is sitting in front of me with a, 
a pleased but glazed look in their eyes, is suffering in the same way that that physically same person expected themselves to be suffering when yep. they composed that document, uh, you know, of sound mind. You said it beautifully. Your self now is so vastly distinct from yourself. If you have dementia, you cannot make any parallels and any decisions for your dementia self by putting yourself in that uh, picture. Yeah. This is an impossible decision because we say once you have dementia, you don't have decision-making capacity. And we generally are against, and I think for good reason, for others to make made decisions for us on our behalf. Thanks so much for coming on. This was a very engaging and informative conversation for me. I enjoyed I it hope, too. I hope you had fun as well. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll have to do part two at some point and, and talk a bit more about life and purpose. Yeah, I'd love to do that. Let's uh, let's get down to the bottom of that and we can uh, let everyone know. Yeah, thanks, Josh. <laughs> okay, thanks, Rashad.